0: letter of Paul to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever." no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it lest I should mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.
1: Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church, and uh, let's take some time to pray before we turn to God's Word. Lord, uh, it is in Christ alone that we stand. And, Lord, I love the the theology of that song, Um, the great things that we sang, these wonderful truths. No power of hell, no schemes of man can pluck us from your hand. And we thank you for that security, for that love, for that redemption. Thank you, most gracious Lord. Father, we want to pray for our sister Melissa who's in the hospital. Um, Father, we pray that uh, her... um, her heart would uh, begin to uh, behave properly. Uh, Lord, that her blood pressure might be coming down. Father, would you be with her as she goes through a stress test today um, and help the doctors make um, wise, informed decisions on how to treat her and how to restore her? And Lord, we, we ask that you would restore her health, that you would surprise the doctors at what you do in her body and uh, that you're able to save. And Lord, through all of this, whatever your decision is as far as her, her outcome, Lord, we pray that you are drawing Melissa closer to yourself through the, um, the fear that she might be experiencing as she's facing all these tests, um, that uh, her, her weakness in her body would be a reminder, Lord, that we rest in you. And I just pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would be with her even now and, and comfort her, offer her um, the comfort of maybe recalling scriptures that she hasn't thought of in a while and just surprise her with the, the refreshing stream of your word and have mercy on her, Lord. Father, we pray also for Jeannie. Uh, thank you that she's home. We pray that um, though still uh, a bit of a mystery to the doctors as far as what they should do, Lord, she is resting in you and trusting in you. And We thank you for her uh, seasoned example of faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, as she has walked with you many years. Uh, we pray that you would continue to heal her and strengthen her. Uh, we long to have her back in her fellowship. And uh, Father, thank you for Trina uh, and the healing that you were able to effect in her. We pray that you would continue to heal her body, Lord, that there would be no more recurring problems, um, that she would uh, continue to walk with you. And Lord, now we ask that you'd come and be with us as we turn to your word. Help us to understand what it is that you're telling Philemon, and really help us understand how that applies to us. And we ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. So i got a question for you, what is Microsoft's greatest contribution to personal computing? What do you think is the greatest thing Microsoft has done for co- personal computing? Might be MS-DOS, right? Microsoft DOS, it was the first personal computer operating system that was widely used. Um, but it was derivative. It was really a ripoff of two other existing operating systems, Unix and something called CPM. So it wasn't really so innovative, but it was, it was popular. Uh, maybe Windows, I mean, we're still using Windows today. In the 1990s, Windows dominated the world. Maybe Windows is Microsoft's greatest contribution to personal computers. But the truth is, Windows was a rip-off of Macintosh. They, they stole it from them. So even that was kind of derivative. I, what I want to offer you is something that maybe you've never heard of, that I think really is Microsoft's greatest contribution to personal computers. It's a program called VisiCalc. Anybody know what VisiCalc is? Ever heard of that? VisiCalc was revolutionary in its day. It was unheard of. It, companies were clamoring to get copies of it. They wanted it to, to use it because it was such a powerful tool. It was so powerful and so important, as a matter of fact, that Steve Jobs gave Bill Gates a Macintosh before they premiered and said, We want VisiCalc, develop it for it. So here, here's the computer, make VisiCalc for this computer. And so that was how, how big it was. What it has become, we're still using it just in a different way. What it's become is a program called Microsoft Excel. It's a spreadsheet. It was the first spreadsheet that was widely available to people. It was, it was super powerful. Before the invention of VisiCalc, you did things on what were called ledger sheets where you would rows of numbers and columns of numbers. And you'd get to the row and you'd total that up and you'd do the number crunching and all that it was done by hand. It was prone to human error and mistakes. What VisiCalc did is it took that ledger sheet and turned it into an electronic version of it. So you could put numbers in and and it would do the calculations for you. Um, So today with Excel, uh, it is still extremely powerful and widely used. Um, I teach a class on computers at ABC on Saturday mornings and I teach through the office suite. We do Word, PowerPoint, Microsoft Access, but Excel is the one that everybody gets really jazzed about. That's the one that they really want to know more about. I'm like, I'm only doing an introduction, they have a whole other course on that if you want it. So Excel is this, I would say that's probably Microsoft's best, most original, longest lasting contribution to personal computers. And it has been used in a variety of ways, not all of them as spreadsheets. Um, One of the most creative versions I saw of it was a friend of mine was designing a floor plan for a building that he was renovating and he did it in Excel. He shrunk the, the cells till they were small and then filled them with black and he drew the lines and had the whole thing. I saw that and I was like, <laughs> I am so impressed. I've never seen Excel used that way. So when I worked for Whole Foods Market, Excel was how everything was done. It was used for everything. Something as simple as a recipe. They would type the recipe and even though there was no number crunching on it, um, the, the uh, finance department sent out these spreadsheets for inventories and you would put all this data into the spreadsheet for inventories. And it did this elaborate number crunching to come up with how is your department doing this quarter. Um, that was my first exposure to how, um, how we used it at, uh, at uh, Whole Foods Market. And the way I got exposed to that was, you know, I started in the deli, right? I started uh, slinging tofu at the counter and, and, and I had no idea what was going on, clueless, right? Somebody came up one morning is, or one afternoon and said, hey, have you got prosciutto? And I just smiled and turned around and said, have we got prosciutto? Oh, yeah, it's in specialty. OK, it's right next door in specialty. What is prosciutto? <laughs> I had no clue. Um, but as I started moving up in the department, they wanted me to do an inventory with them. They did them quarterly. And so they said, you have to come in Sunday and do an inventory. I was like, dude, I don't come in on Sunday. I'm, I'm, I go to church on Sunday. They said, it's all right, we're going to start inventory about 5. Show up around 11. You can work overnight with us. I was like, deal. So I come in at 11, and uh, um, the place is in chaos. They've got stuff everywhere, because you have to weigh everything, all your ingredients, all the, the, the stuff that's prepared. Uh, You've got to count all the containers that it goes in, all the bags, all the boxes of stuff, and it all has to go into this magic spreadsheet. And so one of the things that you have to count is spoilage. What are you throwing away? And so when I came in, I said, all right, dudes, what do you need? They said, here you go, and they hand me a stack of papers. This is our spoilage they sit me down at the computer and they said, we, what you got to do is enter these numbers here. And when you get all those numbers entered, then total it up, use this calculator, total up the numbers, put it at the bottom and then, then we can, you know, press on. That, that'll take you a little bit. So i got like, cool, dual, no problem. So I'm going through these sheets and I'm typing all the numbers in and I get to the bottom and I pull out the calculator. I'm going to have to type all of those numbers again into the calculator. And I got about two numbers in. I went, wait a minute, this is Excel, equal, sum, clear, poof, here's the total. And these guys thought I was a wizard. <laughs> how on earth did you do that? What on earth? What? Show me how do that again. They thought it was magic. And so that's when I started really moving up in the department because they went, here's somebody who has a clue about computers. He doesn't know prosciutto, <laughs> but boy does he know computers. And so the, the reason I bring that up is because what they had done is these brilliant chefs, these, these, these management people who could handle most elaborate recipes, they were so focused on outcomes. What is the task that I must do? I must get a number for the total of my spoilage. And I'm going to use this calculator because that's how you get numbers. What they didn't realize is what, not just what the task was, but the tool that they had been offered to accomplish that task. Microsoft Excel could do that and a ton more. And they had no idea about that. When you focus too much on the task, on, on accomplishing the thing, on the mechanics of it, you can forget what's behind it and you can wind up losing a lot. <laughs> you can wind up wasting a bunch of time. I mean, I can't imagine how long it would have taken because it was like five pages worth of numbers to type them in twice <laughs> and then get it on a calculator. So that's, that's what we're gonna see this morning as we turn to Philemon is Paul is, is interested in outcomes. He, he wants Philemon to do the right thing, but he doesn't focus on just the, the um, action that he must take. He goes behind it. And so when we turn to this, when we look at this section, uh, what we're going to see is Paul, uh, his, his advice to us when dealing with somebody we don't agree with is appeal, f- appeal for love's sake. That, that's his motivation. That's where he goes with this. So you remember last week when we started Philemon, we, I said that the topic is it's a picture of Christ's family. It's a picture. It's this snapshot of the family gathered to resolve this issue, but it's frozen in time. And we don't know what came before or after it. We just get this one image. And so the way we're going to approach it again this week is we're going to analyze the picture. Uh, Last week we looked at one portion of the photo, now we're looking at the next portion of the photo. and We're going to dig in and understand what's going on. Once we understand the picture, then we can step behind it and say, what's the theology that's driving this? What What are the truths about Jesus Christ? What are human truths that are pushing Paul in this direction? And then we can take that and say, now how does that apply to us? Because like I said last week, anybody own a slave? Anybody own a runaway slave? Anybody own a runaway slave who's become a Christian? Anybody on a runaway slave who's become a Christian is now coming back to you, then we don't have to apply it. Well, that's obviously not true. So let's take a look at this next section. The last week what we saw was we started out, Paul started by recalling the good. His introduction to the letter is the standard letter format introduction, but what he does in it is he remembers, he rehearses for himself, for Philemon, and for the church in Philemon's home. Here's the good that Christ has done in this man. Look at all of these things. He's refreshed me. He's been a blessing to the church. And so he reminds us, Jesus is at work in this man. He's not perfect. He hasn't arrived there yet. Paul's about to address a big issue with him. But he starts by remembering, this is is what Christ has done for him. This is what Christ has done in him. And so now this week, we're going to look at how Paul takes his next step. Once he's remembered what Jesus has done, now he's going to appeal for love's sake. So it begins in in verse 8. Accordingly, Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. So he's, he says he's bold enough in Christ. Um, he's bold enough to command Philemon. He's not bold enough to command Philemon because he's smarter than a Philemon, because he's wealthier than Philemon. He's probably not. Not because he's written enough books. He's a he's well-published author. Not because he's recognized in public. It's because in Christ he is bold enough to command Philemon. So there's something about Paul that says, in Christ, he has this authority. That word command, you just don't understand how powerful of, of a word that is. Um, one dictionary said it's the stronger version of the verb, and it's used when Jesus commands demons. So when Jesus looks at a demon, he says, be silent and come out, that's the word that's describing his authority. Now, did, did that demon have a chance in the world of saying, no, I'm not? That's how strong that command is. It is used when Jesus commands the winds and the waves, be calm, be still. Did the winds and the waves have any chance of telling Jesus no? No way. It's used when the high priest commands Paul to be struck on the face. The high priest was large and in charge. He was the guy. And so he commands Paul to be slapped on the face. It's an authoritative, really strong word, and it's used here. And what Paul says is, in Christ, as my my apostleship, I have the authority to command you. I could tell you you must do this well why why does Paul feel that he could command him that way? Well, Paul has what we would call apostolic authority. Paul is an apostle he has an authority that is unique in church history. so when we use the term apostle in the New Testament um, We tend to use it as as one word. It means one thing. But I think actually, apostle has a couple of various meanings. Uh, So, for example, in Acts 14 14, it says, But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, so Paul is an apostle, but so is Barnabas. Does Barnabas have this apostolic authority where he could come in and command people, where he could write books of the New Testament? We don't see that. I think what. Pardon me. I think what apostle means in this kind of way is what we would call somebody a, a missionary. Because that word apostolos means sent, one who is sent out. That's, have you ever used the word apostate? Somebody who is apostate has gone out. They have departed from us. So that's that idea, apostle, is one who is sent. So Paul and Barnabas are apostles of the church that sent them in Antioch, the ones that sent them out. They're apostles that way. There's another way that we use it, and the way I think we more often think about it, is the 12, the 12 apostles. And that is an authority that is unique because Christ commissioned them. He gave them direct orders. They learned specifically from him. They had a unique role in the church as the foundation. They are the foundation and the pillars of the church. Now, we blur those two together, and I don't think we should. I think we should be a little more careful. So what I'm claiming here is that Paul is saying, because of his apostolic authority, he could command Philemon to do what's right. What happens when an apostle commands somebody? Think about Ananias and Sapphira. They came before the apostle Peter, and they lied. And Peter says, you didn't lie to me. You lied to the Holy Spirit. And they died. He dropped down dead. This is apostolic authority. I, I may tell you you're lying. You will never die because I tell you you're lying. I don't have that level of authority. So now if you're pretty up on your Bible, you're asking me at this moment, hang on there, preacher boy. I know who the 12th apostle is. Judas was the 12th apostle, and he died. And so in Acts chapter 1, they appoint Matthias as the new 12th apostle. He takes Judas's office. So how can Paul be an apostle? That's, that's more than 12. Um, it's a complicated issue. It's a complicated question. I, I think the way I, I would word it is to say that the, the, the word the 12 is not speaking of a specific number of people. It's speaking of an office. It's speaking of a role. So consider Paul's calling. Paul is on his road to Damascus. He is going to persecute and, and arrest the church. And what happens? Christ met him personally. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what Paul tells us later in his conversion story is, is uh, Galatians 1.11. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not a man's gospel. For it did not, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So whereas the apostles, the 12, Peter and, and those went and preached the gospel, Paul received it not from the church. He received it directly from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus commissioned him when he was blinded and he's waiting in, in Damascus. Ananias comes and tells him, you, this is what Jesus is going to do with you. So I think that is the calling of Paul. So what do we do with the 12? I thought it was 12 apostles. We have to, we're so Western, we want those numbers. <laughs> those numbers have to line up. Um, they better line up right. Well, I hate to break it to you, but the number 12 is a little tricky in the, new, in the Bible. Name for me the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel, it depends on where you look in the Bible, who you wind up with. In Genesis 29 and 30, the 12 sons of Jacob are listed, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. And it goes down, and it's Joseph, and it's Benjamin, and and that's the 12. Now switch over to Numbers chapter 1. In Numbers chapter 1, we don't include Levi, and we drop Joseph, But instead, we pick up Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's boys, who, by the way, Jacob laid his hands on and said, these are my sons now. So it's still 12, but it's not the original 12. And then to make it even stickier, go to Revelation 7. It talks about the tribes of Israel that are going to be redeemed. And in this case, it leaves out Dan and Ephraim, but includes the Manasseh. So I think what we need to do is look at the the 12, not specifically as who, who gets a billet in the, the 12, but look at it as an office. It's a function. It's, it's a little murkier. Now, having said all that, let me, let me explain it a little bit. <laughs> Acts 29 and 30, it is Joseph's boys. It is his sons. That's who's being listed. Numbers chapter 1 is talking about the tribes that will inherit the land. Levi doesn't inherit, right? Levi doesn't get any land. And so Levi is left out. And so, since Levi's left out, we drop out Joseph and we include his two boys and we still divide the land up among them. Joseph is said to receive double portion because of his two sons. And then in Revelation 7, I'm not positive. Um, it, it's talking about who will be redeemed. And Dan is excluded because Dan has a bad track record, I think. He, he had some rough spots, so maybe that's what's going on. So when I say Paul is speaking here, as we look at the, consider the picture, you see Paul standing there and floating over his head is the word apostle. And, and when we think of apostle there, we need to think the 12. He has this authority. And so what he says is, I could command you to do what is required, not what is nice, not what is, boy, it would be really good if you did this. Not what I think you should do. He says, I could command you with the authority of Jesus Christ to do what is required. What he's about to ask Philemon to do is not optional. It is required. It is a strong statement of that. But what he says is, in verse 9, he goes, But yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So he says, I could command it, I could, I, I could, with a word, I could bring it about at this moment, but I don't want to. I want something better. For love's sake, Philemon, I want you to do what's right. So what Paul is looking at is he's saying, Philemon, you're, you're, you're doing something wrong. You may not even be aware of it. And what I want is not simply your obedience. I want your heart. I, I want you to do this because of love's sake. Out of love's sake, to do this. Paul is more interested in moving Philemon in the right direction by appealing to his heart rather than just the command to do it. And then he says almost parenthetically, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. In the ESV, it's offset with uh, dashes, saying it's kind of almost a parenthetical statement. Um, I think when Paul says this, he's still kind of appealing to his authority, but he's doing it in a kinder way. Because when he says, Paul, an old man, the word there for old man is presbyter. And so when we call, we talk about, we're coming up in, in, uh, in December about elections for the o- church offices. We're going to elect elders. That's where we get that term elder from is referring to a presbyter, an old man. But in Greek culture, the word presbyter meant more than just an old person. And in church culture, it doesn't mean old. So <laughs> my fellow elders, you're not old necessarily. You might be. Um, it could also be used in Greek culture to refer to an emissary, an ambassador. They were usually the older men, the, the wiser statesmen. And so Paul is saying, he's saying, I am an old man. This is toward the end of his life. He's probably approaching 60, 62. So in, in that culture, that was really old. That was, you didn't live that long usually. So he is saying he's an old man, but he might also be saying, I'm appealing to you not only as uh, a, an old man, but as an ambassador of Christ and a prisoner of Christ. And so I'm coming to you, and he starts with his authority, and then he comes down and he says, now it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ, and I'm coming as his ambassador to you. And I want you to do the right thing, Philemon. I want you to act correctly, because that's what's the most important thing. And so then verse 10, he says, this is what he's asking. This is what it comes down to. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So now we need to talk about Onesimus. Who is this guy? Well, apparently, he is Philemon's slave who ran away and somehow gets introduced to Paul. Now, where is Paul? Paul's in prison. We've, we got that a couple of times. The question is, where was he imprisoned? Because Paul spent a fair amount of time in prison. He, he visited all the best prisons in the Roman Empire. apparently. One theory is that he was imprisoned in Ephesus. And the reason for that is because he says later, I hope to be released to you soon. Well, it would be a pretty short trip from Ephesus to Colossae. And so that seems reasonable geographically. Um, The other option is that he's imprisoned in Rome. And so I think Rome is actually the better choice. Because what we've seen of his imprisonments in Philippi and, and in other places, he was in like a jail jail. But when he went to Rome, he went because he appealed to the emperor. And so he is put under house arrest. You have to stay in this house. You have to provide for yourself. And you can receive guests. That's what we see at the end of the book of Acts is he's receiving guests. So I think maybe Philemon or Onesimus had, gone, had run away and went to Rome and hoped to just blend into the crowd, disappear. And so somehow somebody grabs him and says, I got somebody you have to meet and takes him to the apostle Paul. And Paul, the way that it's worded, I became his father in my imprisonment. He preached to him. He told him the good news that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's not about you. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he can save you. He, he bore the burden for your sin. And so will you trust in him? He, he, can, he can make the obstacles go away because it's not about what you've done or who you are. And Philemon apparently, or I mean, Onesimus apparently puts his hope in Jesus Christ at that point. Paul witnessed to him and became his father. And Onesimus is his child. Now, I like the way that the New American Standard did it, that, the way that, um, that Jim read it. The se- <coughs> pardon me. The sentence ends in the word Onesimus. And in Greek, that's probably wh- that's, that's where it is. is this is toward the end of the sentence. And the reason that he did it that way is because verse 11, now this one is parenthetical, Paul does a word play. He, he throws in a little pun. He says, uh, it ends with Onesimus. And then it says, Formerly he was useless but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. What's he doing there? Why does he throw that in? Well, because Onesimus means useful. So what he's saying is, he, is was useless to you, but now he's Onesimus to you and I. It's a wordplay. So I think what's happening here, I think there's a couple of things going on. Paul is, is first of all, commending Onesimus and saying this, this guy is really good in ministry. That's, that's the first thing I think he's doing. I think the second thing he's doing is he throws this pun in, this this word play, because he's trying to de-escalate the conflict between himself and Philemon. So he starts out with, I could command you. And then he says, but I'm appealing to you. And now he throws a little joke in, trying to warm himself to Philemon. So Philemon will hear what he has to say next. And so verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul really loves Onesimus. He has a high regard of him. So, so Philemon, when you receive this man, understand you're not just receiving your former slave. You're receiving my very heart. I, it, it cost me dearly to send him to you. And, and I want you to feel the weight of what I'm doing here. I'm sending, him, I'm sending you my very heart. And then verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So Onesimus is still a slave, and now Paul is saying, "Look, he could stay with me, and he could serve me. And since you own him, since he's your slave, the credit that he earns here, working for me, supporting me, working in in my ministry, it goes to you because you own him. He's your slave. I could keep him here, and and I could keep using him in the way that he's been serving me. Who knows what he's been doing? He might be uh, helping people come and find Paul and uh, leading them to his place. He might be." securing food. He might be sending messages to different places. Whatever he was doing, he was helping Paul in his ministry while he's in prison. And so Paul says, I would be glad to keep him. This is a ministry partner that I really like, but, verse 14, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. In other words, Paul could say, Philemon's staying, but he didn't want him to because the gain that that or the Onesimus could stay but the gain that Philemon would get would be not as good because Philemon wouldn't really have a choice would he <laughs> I don't have my hands on this guy so I can't really do much about it Paul says no I don't want it be, to be by compulsion because I demanded it from you I want it to be to show what kind of a person you are that goes back to the beginning doesn't it look at the work Jesus Christ has done in you Philemon I want that to shine. I want that to glow. I want people to see that goodness in you. And so I'm sending Onesimus back to you so that you can do the right thing. Show me the goodness that you have in you. Demonstrate that to me. He says, for perhaps he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Now, one of the complaints about the New Testament, and actually in the Bible in general, is it doesn't ever explicitly directly condemn slavery. So this could be taken out of context. I'm sending him back to you so you can have him forever. He can never be released as a slave. That's reading it way out of context. You you missed the second half of the verse. But it does raise that question, what about slavery? (laughs) Well, what we'll see is what Paul is doing here is he's undermining the institution of slavery. What he's about to do is to turn it on its head. And He's going to be subversive in a way that is incredible. So the complaints are: there was slavery in the Old Testament; the, the Old Testament commanded slavery. What the law did to slavery was even worse; it made it humane. If you knock a slave's tooth out, you have to release him. Well, in the rest of the world, if you knocked a slave's tooth out, he was a toothless slave. It didn't lose anything. You know, I, I could whatever I wanted to do to him. Even in the Roman Empire, what you did to a slave was fine that you could, you could abuse them any way you wanted. It was up to you. Often slaves were beaten and abused. Sometimes they were treated as part of the family. It, was, it varied. So what Paul does here, instead of saying, don't have a slave, he doesn't come out and say, you know what? The Roman, we need to campaign against the slavery in the Roman Empire. We need to overturn this institution. This is horrible. Let's start a campaign to end slavery in the Roman Empire. Why not? Is that a bad thing? Well, don't forget where Christianity is at this point, It's a brand new religion. It's still flying under the cover of Judaism, which was a recognized religion in the Roman Empire. This new emerging religion in the Roman Empire was hanging by a thread. If Paul had come out and done something so revolutionary as to say slavery is wrong and must end, that might have been the end of Christianity in the empire. There was just no legal standing for it because, first of all, it was social, right? This, this Philemon may own Onesimus because Onesimus owed him money, couldn't pay it back and so now he goes into slavery. He could have bought him at a slave market. Maybe Onesimus was from another land and was lost in a war and he winds up there. There's any number of ways. So it was social. It, it, was, it was a social thing that was going on. As a matter of fact, there was a, Roman, uh, a, a law that was introduced in the Roman Senate that said We have to have slaves wear certain uniforms so that we know where they are. So if they run away, we can find them. And the thing was shot down almost immediately. You know why? Nearly a third of the residents of Rome were slaves. If they find out how many there are, (laughs) they recognize each other. So it was this huge institution within Roman culture. Not only that, it was economic. You would shatter the economy if one third of the people who work for free now have to get paid. So Paul could, there's no way that Paul could step up and say we need to just end slavery. We look at it from a 20, 20th century, 21st century perspective and go, that's wrong. It should be ended. Ale and amen, brother. It should. But there's different ways to do it. So look at how Paul does it. He says you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave. He did, he, 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 the ESV says bond servant, terrible translation, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. So Paul's appeal to Philemon to do the right thing is, Onesimus is coming back to you. You have a a choice here. It's within your power to release him, to say he's no longer a slave. But not only that, to receive him no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. That is going underneath the institution of slavery and saying the slave is a human being. The slave is someone who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. The slave is worthy of honor and recognition. And that's what he does. He says, now you can receive him as a beloved brother. And then he ends, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So does that mean that Philemon was Onesimus' brother because it was in the flesh? I don't think so. I like the way the NIV translates it. Both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So what he's saying is his body is walking back into Colossae, you have him back in the flesh, but more than that, beyond that, you have him as a brother in the Lord. And don't forget everything Paul has told us about Onesimus, this man is effective in ministry. He is really helpful. Maybe his time as a slave has taught him how to serve others in a way that doesn't have to be compelled by slavery, but it could be compelled just by the love for the brotherhood. And so Paul sends him back that way. So that's the snapshot, that's the picture. Well, what's going on here? Let's step behind this for a moment. What we see is, first of all, Philemon owns Onesimus, but Onesimus has dignity in and of himself because he's a human being. Now, w- Paul is using the institution or the, the, this moment of, of Onesimus' conversion to say that you can't own a slave. But really, that extends beyond that because did Onesimus physically, genetically, species-wise change when he became a believer. He was born again. He was more human than he was before, but he was no less human than he was before he was a believer either. So the change was not in in Onesimus' state. He remained the same person he was, except now he's redeemed and he's in Christ. So the first thing that we notice is humans have this dignity. It, It comes, it's rooted in who Jesus Christ is. It's rooted in what God has done. He's made us in his image. Now, the next thing is, when we look at this picture and we, remember I'm saying this in the context of evangelicals fighting with each other and we're we're beginning to split and and move in different camps and can we stay together. Um, When you look at this picture and you think, now, if I have to engage with somebody, how should I do it? Well, I'll recall the good and then I'll appeal to their heart. What you're doing when you look at it that way is you're assuming, in this snapshot, you're Paul. What if in this picture, you're Philemon. What if you're the one who is doing something that is just the way it's done? I mean, I I never thought of this before. It's just the way this is done. Why would I do anything different? And somebody needs to come to you and say, yeah, but brother, you're a Christian. So if you're having a difference of opinion with somebody, you need to pause for a moment and recognize maybe I could be the one at fault. and, And I need to approach this and and do the same things. Look at them as, they're you know, this is what Christ has done in them. Look at me. Jesus has done these wonderful things in me. Now check my heart as I go into this. So don't assume you're Paul in this picture. You might not be. Or you might be. Y- you have to have the humility to go in and go, we're having a difference of opinion. Something's not right and that something could be me. So what do I do? And then the other thing is you can, you can focus so much on the outcome. You can say this person is just dead wrong in this particular issue that you miss the person. And so what you want to do when you engage in a discussion with somebody is you want to win the person, not just the argument. You have to give them room to maneuver. You can't shut down every logical question that they have and answer everything. A, f- a very wise friend of mine told me one time, when you're debating with somebody, when you're discussing difficult issues with somebody, it's best to leave them t- a space to retreat to. So you can, you can argue all of, the, all of the things that they're saying, here's how they're all wrong. But sometimes it's best to leave them one thing, let them back into that and go, well, you know, I, I see that differently, but I can understand how you can see that. Because now they don't feel attacked. Now they feel like they, f- they found a safe space. And you can engage them again. And now you can begin to address that last stronghold that they have and say, is that really the best way to read that? So you want to make sure what you're doing is winning the person, not the argument. That's what Paul is doing with Philemon. I could command it, but I don't want to. I want you, Philemon, I want your heart right with the Lord. So so do it that way. The other thing is, like the spreadsheet and typing in the numbers and not knowing that it's a spreadsheet, that kind of thing, we focus on the outcome, and what we forget is what's behind it. There was a great book written in the early 90s by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And I had little kids at the time, and I remember when I read this, it was mind-blowing. I never considered this before. Here's one of the things he says. I'm going to tweak it a little bit so that it's, it's more applicable to our situation, but it's pretty much straight out of the book. Behavior irritates. Bad behavior irritates. The kid acts up, you want to zap the kid. Right? You want to address the behavior. Behavior irritates and thus calls attention to itself. Behavior becomes your focus. You think you have corrected when you have changed unacceptable behavior to behavior you sanction and appreciate. You see what he's saying? The kid acts up. The brother in Christ is saying something stupid. I'm going to zap them so they won't say that anymore, so they won't act like that anymore. That's because the behavior is what, the lightning rod, it's what drew your attention. He goes on, remember, behavior does not just spring forth uncaused. Behavior Reflects the heart. If you are really to help, you must be concerned with the attitudes of the heart that drive behavior. And that's what we see Paul doing. Is he? He's not just appealing to Philemon to do the right thing. He's appealing to his heart and saying you have to feel the right thing. As a matter of fact, I think that's what Paul doing is doing when he starts with you should, and I have the authority to zap you, but I'm appealing as an ambassador, and then this lighthearted joke about Onesimus's name. I think what he's doing is, is mounting an argument that is not exactly rational as it is emotional. He's mounting an emotional argument. He says, Philemon, how do I act with you? I have authority over you. I could, tell, I could command you, just like if you were a slave. I could command you to do something because I have this authority in Christ, but I don't want that. Remember our relationship, the joy that I've experienced from you, the love that you've shared with, with others. I want you to feel that again. And now I'm going to sit in the middle of that Onesimus, how should you behave there? It, it's not purely a rational argument. It is an emotional argument. It is pulling in that way. And so when you have a difference of agreement with a brother or sister in Christ, what you have to remember is the, it, the issue that's at fault, the thing that is bugging you, the, the, the whatever is, is chafing you at the moment is an example of something behind it. And how can you move behind that and say what is the heart condition that's driving this? It's really hard to do. It's easier to spank the child and say, stop doing that. I'm I'm speaking as a failed father. (laughs) It's much easier to go that way. What's harder is to diagnose, why are you behaving like this? What is it that's driving your heart that way? How can I address that? What is the good news of Jesus Christ that can address this issue for you right now? Where is it that you're failing to trust or, or you're, you're blind to something that Jesus has done for you? How is it that you're missing this and how can I help you find that? And that's the bigger issue. That's, that's the, the, the bigger thing. Um, where we're going to go next after we finish Philemon, it's, it's Advent. And what we're going to do for Advent is we're going to look at our Advent. How are we waiting for the return of Christ? We're not waiting for the first coming, we're waiting for the second coming eschatology, I hope to be able to present this well, eschatology is one of those big components in our lives that we can be blind to that is actually a source of comfort for us as we see the the politics of the nation and the world go all kinds of weird ways, what we have through the middle of that is this hope in Jesus Christ, our blessed hope of his return. And so that's the kind of thing, how can we get behind the issue? What is bugging you? What's driving you nuts? Maybe there's something that you haven't considered. Maybe there's something you're not looking at. And and I think that's the picture that Paul paints for us. So I I could leave instructions for you to type in these numbers into that spreadsheet and then at the bottom pull out a calculator and type that number in there and do that. And I would get the right result, wouldn't I? I would get the result we were looking for. But there's a better way. There's something behind it. So let me explain to you how a spreadsheet works. Let me show you a better way to get that number. And that way when you have to do it in some other context, you'll be able to do it. Paul says, Philemon, I want you to do the right thing. It's required. Remember what he said at the beginning? I could command you to do what's required. Treating treating Onesimus as a brother in Christ, it is required of you. And I want you to do it for your own sake, not because I'm compelling you to. So that's where we go with this. This is how to uh, engage with a brother or sister that you don't necessarily agree with. Now, Having said that, there are borders. <laughs> if, if you don't agree with who Jesus Christ is, if you don't agree that God has eternally existed as three divine persons, uh, each one different but equally God, each one separate, not, not a blending of them, there is a place where you're not going to be able to just go, oh, brother, I love you. <laughs> That's a place where you may have to come down with apostolic authority and say, thus saith the Lord. But in almost everything else, most of the big, as a matter of fact, Looking across evangelicalism, the big arguments, none of them are theological. The big differences of opinion that are raging through evangelicalism are mostly social. And in social, surely we can be much more united than we are. So that, that's the picture that we get. Now next week, we'll finish up the book. We'll see what that last step in reconciliation is. But I think Paul has, has crafted it in a, in a very important way for us. Remember the good. Recall the good. Work to remember, what has this person done? What have you seen Christ do in that person? What has Christ done in you? How how have you seen him manifest his love for others through you? And then when you engage the person, you go for the heart. You don't have to nail every single doctrinal point and hammer them over the head with the Bible. Sometimes you can say, here's the appeal I have for you. And you aim for their heart. Now, you may have to go through the head to get to the heart, but you aim for the heart. And then next week we'll see the last part of that. So with that, let, let's close in, in prayer. Lord, um, what Paul is showing us here, what he's walking us through, what he's demonstrating us, what, Holy Spirit, you have given us this picture, this family portrait of, Lord, it's really easy to talk about it in theory and to discuss it from the pulpit and to you know, write about the different aspects of it. Lord, it's really hard for us to live this sometimes because our emotions rage in the middle of it. Our offense rises up, and so Lord Holy Spirit, would you root your word deep in our own hearts, that we would have a suspicion of our own motives in these things, that we'd remember that Jesus Christ began a good work in us and will be faithful to complete it to the end. And Lord, I pray most earnestly, most sincerely, Lord, would you preserve the unity of the Spirit amongst our evangelical brothers and sisters. We may not agree on everything. We may have different approaches to certain things. But if we are within that evangelical camp, I pray that you would restore the fellowship, the the working together, the common thread that holds us together, even though we don't agree. Lord, help us to stay united, not because it makes us feel better and make us look really nice, but, Lord, because that's what you said is people would know we're your disciples by our love for each other and so lord would you bring that about in our nation in our world preserve your church cause us to walk forward with the gospel of jesus christ even when we don't like each other and lord thank you for the instruction you've given us so that we might have a chance to do that we pray in christ's name amen